Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week marks the return of our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us for better or worse. We're only three months into the year, and we've already received two stellar remakes of two of the biggest horror games of all time, that being Dead Space and this month's release of Resident Evil 4. But before we get to that big ticket item, we do still have a quality group of games to chat about this month. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and um, yeah, it's kind of crazy how many good games are coming out. Yeah, and, I mean, obviously subjective to what anyone thinks, but still, this month alone, I've just found like, I'd forgotten some of these games by the time I got to the end of the month because there were so many. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, the quality level has just been up, 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 up. So, yeah, before we do start off on that list, uh, let's tell our dear listeners what we have on the slate for this month and then we will roll for them. Sure. So, this month we're going to cover A Nemoiopolis, and that is a title that I have been trying to pronounce correctly basically I mean, all day. I, I've been struggling to spell it, let alone say it. <laughs> but, <laughs> With uh, it in front of me. <laughs> difficult name aside, I think that's one that uh, definitely was captivating on the internet far before you know I'd got my hands on it. Uh, it made itself pretty well known and just how interesting it was without really knowing too much about it. So I'm excited to chat about that. But then we'll also dive into my time with the Diablo 4 beta. Yes, I was able to get through that queue time and spend uh, a handful of hours with it. We're going to chat about the highly anticipated Dredge, which is this blending of cosmic horror with this fishing uh, fishing boat simulator that uh, I unfortunately was not able to get my hands on. But Neil, you have the scoop on that. Then we're going to chat about Fatal Frame Project Zero Mask of the Lunar, which is quite a mouthful of a title, but it uh, I think does a great job of kind of giving us a different flavor of survival horror, if you will. Then we're going to dive into a couple of VR titles that you got your hands on, Walking Dead VR, uh, a new Dark Pictures VR game, and then we're going to round out the show chatting about what else other than Resident Evil 4 Remake, uh, which we both got to spend a significant amount of time with. So yeah, let's uh, dive right into Anemoyopolis. I think I just pronounced that slightly different than I did the first time, but (laughs) and <laughs> it's a difficult one, but uh, this was developed by Andrew Quist, and it's arguably the most relaxing horror game of the month as the player takes a first-person stroll through an underground facility that is as surreal as it is serene in its construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, architecture styles that defy logic and their proximity to one another and change the further the player explores this facility. Uh, it's available on Steam, and it can be completed in about two hours or less. Um, but difficult name aside, how did you find uh, this one, Neil? Well, you know, it was refreshing you know, for a game about liminal spaces to actually just not be about what monsters you can stuff in there, which you know, has been the escalating war going on in the indie space to make the back rooms, but with more things that are fucked mm. up in it, which kind of starts ruining the point in a way. But um, I digress. Here it is very much about the unease of the environment and how that makes you feel, not about what might be in there. It's about what isn't there, what should be there, the stuff that bothers you. That's what is brilliant about liminal spaces. And you know, this is a game that really, I'm 
could try and say the name, no. <laughs> but yeah, this is a game that has that in spades. You know, it's, as you say, very relaxing, very much, um, you know, not fret level, closer to a Stanley parable, I suppose, with in a more abstract way in terms of how it handles things. Um, yeah, the interactions of it are very simple. My son was watching me play it and he, he, he wanted me to tell everyone the key remark he came up with. It's like, it's very complex as an idea, but very simply executed. You know, great. Yeah. You know, that's pretty much how I saw it. You know, the more I went in, it's like, yeah, it is, you know, there's not much to it in terms of how you interact with the environment or anything like that, but it still has a complexity to it that is nice and mind boggling in a good way. Yeah. You know? The stuff I like in, you know, full-blown horror games like uh, Layers of Fear, you know, where, you know, stuff starts going wrong the minute you turn your back or things get manipulated in the environment. And that's what, I love that stuff. So when, any game does it. Uh, but here, it really does just show itself in really inventive ways. You know, there's um, a section very early on where you're having to basically track down these elevators and... Um, go through them and you have to basically take each elevator off to get to the next area. And one of the room, the areas is a go, a mini golf course. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just, just perplexing in itself. And <laughs> you actually play, you know, a proper round of mini golf. And then the way that gets sort of subverted and changed, you know, to be, okay, well, I do, I know how many holes I have to do. If it's a golf course and, and uh, like that. And the fact that you could just sort of walk off it and, there's no rules, you know, that's what I like about it. It's like, apart from the old time where you get these little hints uh, early on, it's pretty much left up to you to th- kind of figure things out, mm. which is really, really refreshing. So it, the two things combined for me really did that, you know, that, you know, the, this sort of freedom of um, allowing you to get on with what you're doing and figure it out for yourself. And the fact that it takes that liminal space backrooms s thing and just ignores it and just does it its own way and kind of strips it back to what makes that like, yeah, unnerving in its own way. You know, so it's subtle. If you're going to say horror in this context, it is there. It is just a very subtle, I don't quite feel right in this space in a way that video games kind of get away with more. Um, did it in a movie, it would probably be a bit more striking in that regard. And, you know, but, Video games don't always have to make sense. And <laughs> to you know, to uh, Chris's credit here, he really does get that. You know, he he gets that. That's the challenge that he has, and um, he really does rather well out of it. Yeah, what I really appreciate about this is that it crafts that sense of unease that really does subvert a lot of, like you'd kind of said, those backrooms esque tropes. Right. The mm. fact that you're just waiting for something to stick its head around the corner or something to come up behind you and start making noise. And, you know, it was really unnerving, just the sort of surreal construction of the world. Right. You fall, you know, how many stories through the ground and you end up in a swimming pool and then you go through yeah. that and you're in this like spa area. And then there's a golf course area and then there's a mall. And then there's like and I think there's even like a movie theater section kind of. And I really liked how it tackles that sort of dream like thing that we're always talking about and always searching for in these types of games, but it does it with architecture rather than 
you know, oh, instead of a door, there's, you know, you have to jump through a monster's mouth or something like that, which is kind of along the lines of what you would expect from games that, you know, boast the fact that they have this dreamlike approach to logic in these things. And the game is kind of just very upfront with that, but it's doing so again through more about environmental traversal. Um, And, you know, what it lacks in those conventional scares and those types of things that people would expect from an experience like this, I thought really did it a service to a degree because it shows little bits of, you know, technical proficiency with which this Mm. is made, I think. You know, the sound design I thought was really, really strong to the degree that, you know, when you're walking across different surfaces, whether it's tile, whether it's especially, you know, wet tile when you're around the pool area or if you're running on carpet, you hear a difference in the sounds that you're making, the pitter-patter of your feet, which in and of itself becomes unnerving, especially when you're, you know, you're running and you haven't seen what you expect to see, which is some type of monster. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, is something creeping up on me? Is something going to jump out? And it builds this anticipation um, that doesn't necessarily have a scare payoff to it. But if anything, it lets the atmosphere, I think, do a lot of heavy lifting um, in, you know, replace of some type of uh, more conventional experience, I think. Yeah. I mean, there is something bewitching about it. As I said, my kids don't tend to watch me playing on PC if I'm doing it like that. And they both were sort of really interested in what this game was doing, mm-hmm. you know, which is great. You know, for you know, a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old to be interested is cool. In a game that's just walking. <laughs> Why yeah, and and jumping. I said my son was like very impressed with the visuals of it and saying, you know, it's really impressive. You know, and I know it's not technically going to be like one person that they are going to be, but other people, but still for a small team to make something this polished in so many ways is great. You know, I think it really just lends that sort of surreal nature of it, an extra bit of depth, you know, because. It really just scratches that itch, you know, I have for those sort of architectural environments. And, you know, if there's one other thing I like beyond dreamlike stuff, it is like architecture. Yeah. And it's strange how that's all true to me. And yet when it comes normally to backroom stuff, I I do not give a shit. I don't like that particular Mm -hmm. avenue in the same way that I like horror in the woods, but I don't really care for Slender Man and all that nonsense in it. Um, But yeah, it's still manages to sort of eke out its own existence as this great thing that clearly catches the eye in what it does and you know it's smarter than most games that go for this sort of thing you know like I said the only thing I can think of even remotely close is uh, Superliminal um, which is like a puzzle game which is all about perspective and things like that and it's really cool Um, but very different game still and this is what I mean. I like when you get takes like that that are not necessarily really just tapping into the oh, there has to be a monster or something scary around the next corner. It's like just something about the atmosphere and the place you're in giving you a feeling. And yeah, that that's the most base form of horror you can get, I think. Mm. When you, you have that just that little thing you can't quite get out of your head. And this is a game that really much, really, really does just capture that. Yeah. And I think that even for the central element of it to, you know, access each new environment, which is tied to an elevator, you have to kind of laboriously hunt down these tickets and whatnot. It's probably the one aspect of this that I wasn't a huge fan of just because it requires you to, you know, 
scour several environments over to find this little strand of tickets until you can, yeah. you know, save up the proper amount and whatnot. At the same time, though, you know, the world itself has sporadic puzzles in it and whatnot, which mm. are really simple hacking mini games. But I found that each of the hacking mini games often had some type of physics tied to it that would progress your progression through the environment. Um, even like at one point, something crashes, you solve a puzzle, something crashes through a window. And then at one point, you even have to like, uh, uh, like shoot water onto a lock, basically, yeah. to kind of like set it off or short circuit it. That's the word I couldn't think of. You had to short circuit this lock so that way you could uh, progress further. And, you know, I thought that those were placed at just the right moments where I was getting a little tired of like hunting down these tickets. And then, oh, this kind of like switches things up nicely. Uh, This is, you know, notably chapter one. There's more of this coming. Mm -hmm. I just hope in the further chapters that we get of this, that there's more emphasis on those mini games or those little distractions that add more variation to the world. They give the player more to do than just kind of hunting through the environment on a scavenger hunt. Um, Because I think that while we're both fans of the fact that this really does sidestep the sort of traditional scare route that we mentioned, something needs to be more so in that absence, right? In the Mm -hmm. further chapters that come out to justify the fact that you are subverting the sort of go-to uh, go-to type of experience, I think, just in terms of keeping player engagement up rather because, you know, as great as the architecture is, I need a little bit more to do if I'm going to keep, you know, revisiting this world and whatnot. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the one bright spot to take there then is that generally opening chapters are the least surprising mm-hmm. of games like this. So it's good hope for what comes, you know, to sort of, carry on and really expand upon this and taking it in a release like this could do it a lot of favors you know in terms of feedback and what could work but yeah so that's a that's a really good game yeah no i think that was a good place for us to start this month but uh i want to dive into a little bit of my time with the diablo 4 beta yeah um, and so i've been a huge diablo fan since the second game and i enjoyed my time with three I will say that after three, even though, you know, if I, if I had to reveal the amount of hours I probably spent with that game, as much as I enjoyed that game from a gameplay standpoint, it definitely left me desiring a lot of the Diablo 2 vibe. That game mm. was very much through and through this, you know, horror-centric hack and slash experience, RPG and whatnot. The monsters, the world, the tone, the themes were all very much, you know, the epitome of that and then yeah. in three, it felt more high fantasy in terms of its world, in terms of the themes and these things, almost to a degree that the art style felt more influenced with like a angelic palette, if you will. You know, things are mm. a lot more vibrant in terms of the world itself, the structures, the people that you're meeting for, you know, as yeah. much that <laughs> you're still dealing with demons in hell and these things. But in terms of the presentation, it lacked a lot of what initially stood out to me about, you know, Diablo 2 and Diablo 2 Lords of Destruction. And, you know, with the five hours that I spent with the beta, I would say that Diablo 4 impressed me with its returning to form, being more horror-centric through and through in a way that made me really excited for it in a way that I wasn't anticipating. I was always going to dive into the next Diablo game. You know, that's something... I think 3 is a testament to just how well done the gameplay is at that core level. While Diablo 3 still made a lot of changes 
to that original formula that I wasn't thrilled with. And yeah. in my five hours, I found that Diablo 4 basically rewrites the script that Diablo 3 took some liberties with. So you have not only this darker tone and the world and these things, which I'll get a little bit more into, but just from a core gameplay loop standpoint, you know, you still have that same kind of grind for gear and whatnot. You've got these five classes that all are returning from past games, barbarian, sorceress, druid, rogue, and necromancer. But the way that skills are handled in Diablo 4 is, again, a return to sort of tradition in that the player has the freedom to go down these different paths that have multiple branching avenues for how you mm. want to pursue your character's sort of fight style, if you will. Yeah. So each kind of branch has five skills, and then each of those skills basically has two to three sort of upgrade paths off of that are these sort of attributes. Whereas, if my memory serves me right, in Diablo 3, you kind of unlocked a skill when you'd hit a milestone, but then you mm. had like one or two preset options that you would kind of have to pick between. And then those would sort of give you some kind of semblance of crafting how you wanted to approach combat, but it felt very restricted, obviously, because you had these two options. Diablo 4, it feels like you have a lot more of the original sort of say in what you want to pursue. Um, and I think that what is really a testament, again, to just kind of like even strengthening that core gameplay loop is that in the different tiers of abilities, you know, the traditional RPG kind of way that you think about skills, it's like, oh, well, a level five skill is going to get me through level five to 10, and then I'm going to replace it with something later. But the yeah. way in which the skill structure for this is set up it seems that you know you have multiple options at each level that then become viable the longer that you're playing. It's not like, mm. oh, this is going to get me through the next couple hours before I have to abandon it for something more powerful. It seems like the way in which the builds are going to be constructed, everything is viable no matter the level that you're at. It helps that the enemies also are scaling to you again. But yeah. it feels like there's a lot more of the freedom that was you know taken from the player in Diablo 3 that's being given back to them with the Diablo 4, um, which right out of the gate, as I said, you know, I'm a sucker for that gameplay loop. You know, I love grinding <laughs> for that gear and that loot and everything. And the fact that I'm having more of a say in how I want to play a specific class to its strengths. Um, yeah. You know, I had a crazy busy weekend and I wasn't sure how much Diablo I was going to get to play. The fact <laughs> that I was able to sink five hours into it um, it was surprising to me because I was just like, I had to keep coming back more and more. Um, and I was playing as the Druid. So the Druid, you know, their whole thing is that they get to shape shift in the different animals, but at the same time, they have the casting yeah. abilities of, you know, the kind of standard offensive abilities, but a really nice balance between melee magic. And at the same time, it really does highlight what was really surprising about Diablo four, which is more of an emphasis on, cinematic storytelling. Um, I, granted, I have not been a huge fan of the storytelling in these games. They've always been kind of uh, surface level for me in terms of the types yeah. of fan dark fantasy storytelling that uh, you would expect. But I was really impressed with just the higher emphasis and the production value that went with that. So you have each class is fully voiced. They have fully voiced interactions with other characters past just, you know, hey, how's it going? Or I've retrieved or I've returned. Um, you know, it really is full lines of dialogue that make mm -hmm. you feel more invested in what's happening. Um, and one thing that just in my brief amount of time with the campaign, 
that I was impressed with is a smaller scale sense of storytelling. Um, and so in Diablo three, it felt much more grandiose again, more in line with high fantasy where it's like, we're talking about the fate of the world here, which has never been an element of fantasy storytelling that I'm super interested in, which is why I usually gravitate more towards darker fantasy or just, you know, horror in general. Um, but with this, it's much more small scale in the sense that it's about this place that you're in. It's not so much worrying about, you know, the fate of mankind. It's worrying about the fate of each of the villages that you visit or your character's role in that, which I think allows for more detailed storytelling, world building, but at the same time, not having this sort of like grandiose approach to everything that sometimes can get a little, I don't know, hoity-toity, I suppose, in terms of fantasy, (laughs) um, which has never done it for me. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, You know, the Diablo series, to me, often just sounds like the PlayStation run. You know, it's like, if Diablo 2 is a PlayStation 2 and sets its run, you know, what happened with Diablo 3 was pretty much like the PS3 mm. in the sense of it started out disastrously and then basically browbeat its way back into relevance and became a better game for it. But as a result, it then sets the next game up to have a lesson learned before they even get out of the gate and know that they, they can get off to a strong start, know what worked, know what didn't work, and really just bring it back full circle. And kind of, from what you're saying, it really does just sound like that. You know, they, they've basically looked at everything they've done. Everything that, you know, Blizzard has done in the years in between anyway has probably contributed to that. You know, the storytelling, you know, between characters is, you know, an Overwatch thing, you know, at this point. So unsurprising that it's sort of carried over into this. And, you know, the cinematics have been, you know, the big thing for, mm. for that company for, for years and years. Um, yeah, so, you know, I didn't get into Diablo myself till, like, my friend, you know, uh, was, like, going on and on and on about Diablo 3, and I actually played like that, and I played that with him. Yeah, and then I was really into it. And then I came back to play Diablo 2 when the remaster came out, I think, last year. And that, that was interesting to sort of see the differences in how they played. And, yeah, I mean, it's a series that does just sort of have like big gaps between entries, which is cool, you know, mm. and because it does fundamentally change how the games play whilst still being distinctly Diablo, you know, yeah. in what they are. So yeah, I, again, from what you're saying, that that still appears to be the case, and I'm definitely looking for. I'm hoping maybe after we've recorded this, I might see if the cues are died down a little bit. Unlikely, but um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did try to play it Friday night when it was a launching, and there was like a ninety-minute wait for me. So I was like, yeah. "I'm not going to get to that." And then the next morning, I lo- I woke up early to play a couple hours, and it was like ten minutes, so it was definitely manageable. But uh, one more thing that I'll say about it is that what originally used to be the case for Diablo was the environments were broken up by acts, right? So you would have a theme yeah. that went with each environment. This time around, it's open world. So you can traverse Uh the entirety of the world that you're going to be exploring Diablo for, which, you know, from a technical standpoint is awesome. At the same time, though, from a world building aspect of it, um, it has proper geography in that, you know, at the most northern point of the map, you've got the more snowy mountainous area. 
And then yeah. further south that you go, it becomes more, you know, like running rivers and these things. And then you get to the very southern tip of the map and then it's like all swampy. So there's this yeah. nice continuity to how the world is constructed that actually makes sense, uh, you know, <laughs> at, by the, the sort of grounded nature of how uh, environments in real life are. And so having that and then another thing that they're doing that I think is kind of building off of Diablo 3 is that the monsters are broken up into different sects, basically. So different yeah. types, right? So a couple of them are, you know, you have cannibals that are barbarians who are tied to a more mountainous region. Then you have cultists and then you have the drowned, which are basically undead that have risen from the sea yeah. um, that are found in like the swampy area and whatnot. And it gives a nice sort of flavor to each of the areas that you're visiting. And while at the end of the day, you know, by and large, when you have a game such as this, enemy types are going to fall into a couple of camps. You know, you've got the brutes, you've got the range, the magic spellcasters, the regenerators and all these things. But it's just nice to have a different sort of flavor and texture to each zone. Um, and also the environments are more detailed than I think they've ever been to the degree that, you know, I don't feel as if within those five hours that I was revisiting the same, you know, the same two caves over and over or the same two forts over and over every environment felt like it had enough of a personality or distinction to it, whether it's in the fact it's procedurally generated or just the overall aesthetic of it. Like there was a Cthulhu style dungeon that I investigated that has these tentacles that are constantly moving in the foreground. And then sometimes yeah. they come up onto the stone and you have to run across them. Like really, again, a, more of a horror centric tone to it. The game even opens with a very distinct sort of Hellraiser influence yeah. in what's happening and there's even a side quest that has a very uh, overt hellraiser moment in it but you know that plays across in the monsters too or the creature design too like yeah you're gonna fight multiple types of spiders but now there's a host spider that basically a full-grown spider that takes a body and then puppets it so it's walking around <laughs> with the spider on its back and then when you kill it it explodes and a bunch of little spiders come out of it and then you know there's some big ones that come out there too so there's more of a horror-centric focus on this, which takes me back to the days of classic Diablo 2 and Lords of Destruction um, that just makes me want to dive back in and explore even more because uh, the environments themselves, I found, were just as interesting and you know engaging as the monsters that uh, called those places home. Yeah, it's sounding good. You know, I'm going to be buying it anyway because yeah, my mate buys it, and so yeah, it's a given, but yeah. I kind of look forward to it now and much more knowing that it's really just sort of driving home the best bits of two and three. Yeah. It's definitely uh, one that I can't wait to get my hands on again. I hope we get another open beta uh, before it's June release, but uh, mm. we'll have to wait and see, but we're going to change, uh, change up a little bit from the more uh, horror RPG hack and slash focus to something that takes horror, but then, you know, takes maybe a more relaxed approach to gameplay uh, mm -hmm. with the next game that you're going to tell me all about. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's relaxed up until the point you find yourself at nine o'clock at night in the middle of the ocean with fog lights that don't do fuck all. Um, <laughs> and that game is Dredge uh, by Black Salt Games. Um, it, it got a lot of uh, you know, pre-release interest and hype. You know, the likes of Danny O'Dwyer had been really into it, which is for me, usually a good sign of when a game's quality is going to be quite high because he tends to like those games I really like. And yeah, so this is basically at its core a fishing game. And you know, 
when I was reviewing it, I said that one of the first things I said is like, we've had so many fishing games now. It's as, you know, in, you know, stuck in the mud as having zombies, Nazis, red barrels or, or bows and arrows, you know, or even a battle pass. It, it, it's just ingrained in the woodwork of gaming. Yeah. You know, and now that we have to have a fishing game in there somewhere, but it sort of goes the opposite way. It is a fishing game first and foremost. That, that is the thing about it. Um, you are this sailor who gets dashed upon the rocks in this place called the Marrows in this archipelago. And, you know, in a very Animal Crossing style, you know, the, the local mayor's like, yeah, your boat's fucked. We'll give you a new one, but you've got to pay it off sort of thing. You know, <laughs> so, and thankfully that doesn't turn into a Tom Nook situation where you are just paying for the rest of your life. It seems, um, you know, that, that bit is over quite early, but then there's constant stream of incentives to keep going. You know, you are basically the new fisherman for the area. As a result, you catch fish to sell to the, you know, the fish shop and blah, 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 make your money. You can upgrade your boat, boat at the shipyard. And if you find stuff salvage out in the ocean, but to do all these things and do them better and make more money and get further, you obviously have to find the right tools, get the right amount of money, and then basically upgrade your boat bit by bit. Now, if you remember games like um, FTL, mm-hmm. where you know you have like a grid-based system for your ship, and here is the same. You know, it's a grid-based system where, like an inventory box, and you put the fish you catch in there, but some of those spots are taken up by your equipment. So the, what kind of rods or nets or whatever you have, what kind of engine you have, your fog lights, um, things like that. And you just collect more and more as you go by finding certain things, doing certain quests, um, and just being pushed further and further out into more and more dangerous territory. Mm. Now, early on in this game, you are told that you don't really want to be out after dark, and it's clouded in the sense of, oh, you, well, you know, because it's really foggy around here and your boat doesn't really have the equipment to cut through that very well. It's true. If you go out at that time, you know, after six o'clock at night, it's going to look like that. But, you know, the, it becomes very clear that there's something a bit more about it. You know, the, it is that very classic Lovecraft storytelling of, you know, just like everybody's in on the secret but you. <laughs> and you don't quite question it because you, you're new here and you're the new person. And then you start catching fish that are mutated and. You know, that apparently, you know, the, the, the fish shop guy really likes you to get those because they'll give you more money for them. And then you'll find a guy who's like, oh, there are these artifacts that you could find in the ocean and, you know, bring them to me and we can help solve the mystery of this place. And it's like, and it's so it slowly, slowly, slowly unravels until you start <laughs> finding out more and more about this strange, strange place that with all these little different places around it. Now, the map is given to you quite early on. And you can see every point on the map like that, you, that you could go to. But time moves when you move in your boat, when you go out. So there's no on-land sections, anything like that. When you dock anywhere, basically like points of interest, and you click on them to talk to people like that. that and you can rest there until the morning, if you wish. Um, but generally, when you're out in the boat fishing, time keeps moving. Um 
so the fishing itself is where that really comes into play because whilst time is moving and you go for these sort of like uh, QTE style mini games where you like knock this thing back up, down, up, down, up, down, avoid the thing, obstacle sort of thing or whatever. And if you fail and like mess them up, you know, there's no penalty for that in terms of like what you're doing. It carries on, but it takes more time. So more, so you start messing up certain fishing spots that might have lucrative stuff like uh, salvage or dredge, you know, or have good fish. Suddenly, something that you started at 12 o'clock in the afternoon is taking you 7 o'clock at night because you just lost, because you get focused on what you're doing. And suddenly you can find yourself, you know, too far out and desperately trying to remember the way home. Mm. And that's where dredge is really good. It creates this... um sense of unease you know about the ocean you know i've already got anyway but it really just emphasizes why you know um long before you see anything that really warrants you feeling like that it's giving you little hints you know giving Mm. little a sense of you're going to find something that is unpleasant and yeah the when you start exploring further areas when you've upgraded your ship a bit more you do start discovering weirder and weirder fish and more signs of some sort of ancient cult going on. And it is fascinating, you know, to discover things in the way you do because early game is quite serene, you know, very twee in a lot of ways and deliberately so. You know, it's being deceptive on purpose at that point. And I noted um, a lot of people who reviewed this were kind of taken aback that it had a horror element to it at all, hmm. which was like, I was surprised that it was like, pretty sure I knew that was the case, you know, but yeah, it depends if you're given the game to review because someone had to be allocated it or if you asked for it. Um, but yeah, so I like the way it plays out in that regard. I think maybe it takes a, some liberties, um, the further you go in terms of like having to do a lot of back and forth, selling stuff and stuff to get to the next real point it's very ambiguous in terms of like what you need to do really mm. um but i like it for that you know it, it has a lot in common with the games of something like you know from a company like arcane but on a different scale and in a completely different medium you know like sure. that it's just it just has the vibe rather than anything else and i don't know just something about the way it plays out is just mesmerizing, you know? When we see so many games take on the cosmic horror Lovecraft vibe, if you will, um, it's usually a misunderstanding of how that works and thinking it's got to be this way. It's got to be about how crazy this drives you and all these creatures and things like that. And generally, it doesn't escalate in the right way where you go from, you know, folk horror, basically, at its core where you are feeling like you're the new person in town, everything's a bit fucked up, you kind of know it is, you don't quite question it because you've got to get on, and then it becomes more and more clear before you know it, you're stuck deep in it, and you've got to keep going. And I like that vibe of it. It, it To sort of bring up um, references, you know, folk horror is a great place to look at for that because I look at so many films that kind of are influenced by that or have that element in them that aren't quite folk horror. 
and really execute well. I think of um, Ben Wheatley's Kill List or or even um, Mark Jenkins' Bait, which isn't a horror film at all, but it just has something about it, that, that um, about this sort of seafaring seaside town and the menacing vibe it can have in the way it's filmed. And this entirely has that. It just it feels so sophisticated for a game like that. You know, it, I, I it's cool. You look at it; it's a fishing game, whatever like that. But to play it, and if you're into that sort of cosmic horror thing, it is superb at doing cosmic horror. You know, in a way that feels closer to what Lovecraft stories actually were. You know, without being inherently Lovecraftian, if you will. I hate saying that as a word because it's cosmic horror, really, but that's the reference point they're going <laughs> sure. for, you know, absolutely, because that sort of style of storytelling is here rather than just plucking elements out of the sky and saying, yeah, that's that. So, yeah, in case you probably haven't noticed, I really fucking love this. Game, <laughs> too, <so>. <laughs> <laughs> that was apparent. Uh, but no, I, you know, that's reassuring to hear that because I think when a lot of people think about sort of cosmic horror, and especially when it has that kind of sleepy ocean or seaside uh, theme and setting to it, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, inevitably a tentacle monster has to show up. That has to be the star of the show. And it's nice to hear that it uses more about the back, the emphasis is on the backdrop rather than those types of more conventional uh, mm. go-tos, if you will, and whatnot. And that was going to be my big question to you um, was about you know, I guess handholding or like objective based is the game in terms of like dragging the player to, you know, point A to point B. But it sounds like it's more about, you know, them telling you the mechanics and then kind of ushering you into this world. And then it's like the player is the one that is going to learn through experimentation rather than be like, oh, yeah, just go out and bring back 10 fish and then give you a reward. And then you do that and whatnot. And while, you know, that obviously might be a component of it, it sounds like a lot of it is playing around with the variables of the world at the player's discretion and just learning bits and bobs through that um, rather than like, hey, here's an entire objective list of things that you have to do. Mm. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it is because the ambiguity that is there stems from the fact that there isn't really checkpointing, things like that, no markers. It is very much like you'll get a description of a quest and it'll be like, yeah, oh, this is situated in this place and it'll give a name and that's not always on the map but the rest of the scripture will kind of give you an idea but it'll say oh it's northeast of this thing on this mm -hmm. place and like that and i like that because it was really cool to just sort of go back to that figure it out it's very much a thing about you know it feels like it's very ingrained in literature in terms of how everything is because it it requires you to pay attention to everything it's saying you know like that I mean, it's no mistake that one of the sort of things you can do when you're out on the boat is like, you, if you pick up these books and things like you can read them to like get extra knowledge or skills and things like that as you go. Like that, the same as like putting a podcast on as you go out, you know, that sort of thing. It's, um, yeah, it's a really smart in-universe way of dealing with like how to upgrade skills and things. You know? And the fact that, no matter how much you upgrade your ship, it is fundamentally fragile. You know, you dash it against the rocks, you're going to lose something or something's going to break like that. And rocks are like the only real problem early on. And then it becomes more apparent that you know, there will be places you'll go that just 
deliver these absurdly interesting moments. Um, I mean, one of the first places I visited outside the opening area like that, I went down this sort of place that had a really good fishing spot for these weird fish that were supposedly valuable. And the musical changes, you know, the sound is fucking, again, fantastic in limited use here. But I didn't really sort of cop on to why the music was changing until this giant shape in the water was coming <laughs> down this channel towards me and I was still fishing. And of course, time's going on, so you're just freaking out. And I thought, well, it's not dark. And if I go out of here, it won't follow me. And it carried on. And it, carried on. And it was just moments like that where it just, there's no cue as to what's going to happen inherently until you sort of go back to things you'd read and some people had said and they're like oh yeah if you go down there there's legend of a creature that lives down there that's um very protective of its young you know the thing you were obviously fishing is it's young which just looked like normal sized fish so it's stuff like that is just yeah. amazing you know and it just goes to really like magical places after that i suppose the only downside of that is there's a a peak, you know, and then it sort of like gets to a point where like you've the mystery peak and the the excitement of trying to uncover the mystery kind of wears off a bit as it gets a bit it plateaus. I don't know. It's, even then, there was you, you discover something after a while, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is cool. Um, yeah, I can see how it can maybe rub people up the wrong way in terms of like getting through that sort of bit, but. I don't know, but when if you like that sort of horror, it just really just grabs you. Yeah, no, I think that it sounds like it's a great blending of sort of the sim, uh, immersive sim almost, and then yeah. at the same time, you know, you have this world that is kind of shrouded in mystery. And I guess, you know, while you mentioned like a peak in terms of you know kind of hitting your stride, you've kind of mastered your boat your tasks and what you have to do, you've uncovered a good amount of the world and all these things. Like, do you see a pat, like a, I don't want to say like a content plan for it, but it's like, could you see how they could expand on this in a way with further content that could almost capture that initial peak again? Like, is there a quality Mm. to this game that you could see them either expanding on or even like variables they could potentially introduce with the core system that's already in place? I think they need to do a different game. Yeah. really to to um really utilize that part of it but i think the key thing about it is what it does at the beginning in terms of giving you that sort of sense of mystery it's really no different than video games just used to be where you know it doesn't when you had a new video game and it was just plopped in front of you here's a few ideas of what you have to do to get through the game and then you're just you know, hands off let you go free that, that sounds very much like old man shouting at cloud, but it's no denying that a lot of big game experiences now are like, you know, press the stick to look up, press the look, look down and like that. And all that stuff happens in the first five minutes and you don't need it. You know, it's like, I get why it's there because you want to apply to a more casual audience, but games that don't let you sort of avoid that kind of rubs me the wrong way. So yeah, having a game that is, just has that freedom and excitement. It's why people love stuff like Breath of the Wild, you know, in terms of Zelda games, because it suddenly gave you that, you know, it suddenly gave you this wonder back that used to be there in games like that, where your sense of, well, what do I do next? Not in because it was an open world, but because there was an ambiguity to what you were doing that, that um, 
helped you out. And I think Dredge is like a a micro version of that. You know, in terms, of it has that sense of wonder. And the only way you're going to get that again, really, is to do it in a different game. Mm. I think because anything else in terms of like discovery in the story wouldn't quite work the same way. But I would still not say no to like something more in this sort of world, if you will. No, yeah, no, you've definitely piqued my interest, and I'm I'm waiting on my uh, my copy from PR still. But um, I think hopefully we'll have a chance to chat about this in a little more depth. Uh, once I've been able to get my hands on it myself, but no, yeah, Dredge is one that uh, I keep seeing, you know, reviews pop up for it and everything this last week and everything, and it's one that I'm dying to dive into. Um, but uh, I think before we take our break, we got one more game to chat about, mm-hmm. and that would be Fatal Frame Project Zero: Mask of the Lunar. Quite a mouthful, but uh, Eclipse, yeah. See, I even managed to uh, leave off <laughs> part of the title. <laughs> too many words. <laughs> yeah, too many words. But uh, this was developed by Tecmo Games, and it's a remaster of a previously Japanese-exclusive Wii U game of the same name uh, released way back in 2008. Uh, this is the fourth installment in the Fatal Frame series, and it takes place on a fictional island focusing on the character Ruka Minazuki, one of a group of girls who was previously held captive on the island for unknown reasons. And years later, after their rescue, still suffering from amnesia, Ruka and the two other surviving girls return to the island to seek out the truth. So this was my first time with the Fatal Frame series. I uh, oh. previously had not played any of the games in the series. Um, and this was a huge, a huge survival horror blind spot for me. Um, this was something that I'd been meaning to check out for a while, um, and I have to say, right off the bat, I was very taken with the approach to combat, which, you know, by all accounts, you could say, well, the presentation is very different, but it's not too, too different in terms of functionality, in terms of how you defend yourself. But yeah. instead of, you know, traditional firearms and whatnot, the weapon of choice in this series has been what's called a camera obscura, which is a camera that basically can capture the spirits of, you know, the ghosts and whatnot that are on this island. And in doing so, you know, taking their picture, it damages them. And so that's the functionality of combat in this game series. And, you know, that sounds very simple, but there's a good amount of depth to it. You know, it's not just that, you know, oh, I'm aiming down the sights, but instead of a gun, it's a camera. There's sort of a score attack system to it. And it's more about the way in which you capture them, the spirits with the camera that does the most maximum like damage output or gets you the highest score, which has a rating system and a ranking system and all these things that gives you more money, which you can spend on upgrades and whatnot. Um, I was really impressed with the fact that what feels like, I guess, I'm coming to Fatal Frame late. So my first experience of the game that had camera as like a central tool would have been Dead Rising in terms of like, oh, you take a picture of them. The more elaborate the picture, the more comical the picture, you get a higher score. And in this, tying a survival horror element to that, I thought was really genius, right? Again, not saying that, you know, Fatal Frame got it from Dead Rising, but just taking that mechanic and having real stakes involved with it I thought was a really, really smart play on the convention of survival horror uh, sort of tropes, right? It's not just, oh, I've Mm. got a handgun or a shotgun or whatever. It's No, you have something that makes sense to the world, and it makes sense that it would be utilized by the characters themselves, right? It does something that um, 
avoids this sort of idea of like, oh, the protagonist is dropped into this situation they would have never dealt with before. And all of a sudden they're like a super soldier, right? That's not the case here. It's that it's these people that are thrown into this unfortunate situation that are utilizing the variables that make sense for the story that's being told, uh, the very singular story that's being told. And I liked the fact that there's this risk reward system to, you know, how you capture the spirits and mm. whatnot. And, you know, you have the fatal frame, which is in the title, but there's the fatal frame is when a spirit lunges at you, basically. And the closer it gets to the player before they take the picture, they can deal the most damage, you know, when it's right up in sort of your grill. Uh, and I really liked that there's variables to that. There's different film that you can use. There's different attachment for cameras and whatnot. Um, and it makes for some really, really intense uh, conflicts. I almost said firefights, but conflicts, I guess I'll say. <laughs> uh, so, you know, sure, you can play it safe and you can just take pictures of them from afar and dwindle their health down like that. But really, you know, it makes for the most tense but rewarding engagements when they get right up in your face and, you know, you capture this screwed up ghostly image, but it ends up dealing, you know, monumental amounts of damage. Um, and so I was really taken with that and just playing with the convention of traditional survival horror combat and giving it a new flavor that just because it's different doesn't mean there's any lack of depth to it. I think yeah. if it was just kind of like, oh, you know, you just take snap pictures and the range to a target and the types of film and all these things don't really matter. It might feel a little gimmicky, but in terms of the depth of the mechanics and the fact that that plays into like a reward system that then can greatly alter the next sort of chapter that you're playing in, uh, I thought was really well done. And the fact that the camera has functionality outside of combat too, right? You can capture yeah. apparitions throughout the world that you're exploring and you get, remind me what you get. You get some, you either get a bonus or it clues you into like a story detail or something. But yeah. There's, there's like puzzle stuff as well. And you know, it, it covers a, a few different things by that point in the series. Yeah, it's, um, Taking the base mechanic that was always there and just sort of elevating it piece by piece by not making the same game again. Um, I mean, ironically about that, this is, yeah, the last uh, game to be sort of re-released was Made in the Blackwater, which is a game that follows this and was on, you know, the Wii U. So not so old looking, but that game didn't feel quite the same as the older ones, where this now feels a bit more comfortable, more mm. like the the original games did um obviously without the same freshness but the key thing here is that's really important is you know we get this game over here after 15 years you know yeah. it's remarkable and that's great i'm so happy for this game to have been released in the west that is amazing um so that and the fact that it is fundamentally more like Fatal Frame Project Zero as it was you know, than the Maiden of Blackwater was, which was fine. It was very glossy looking though, and um, kind of lost some of the J-horror feel of the, the series, you know, which has always been the key thing. I think what made this series stand out when it first arrived was it was during that peak time for J-horror and it had that aesthetic down to a T like that. And I think when you take it on that sort of ground on those grounds you get a lot more from it because um you know I, I saw complaints about how stiff animation was for characters and how limited they were in movement it's a 15 year old game yeah it's you a know, remaster it's, like, it's not a remake yeah, exactly <laughs> um you know the only reason i would ever compare it to a remake is just in terms of 
it's nice to technically play a new entry in a series for us you know, um, that feels very much like it, a throwback in every way. Um, that comes with caveats, of course, um, in terms of where the problems lie with this, um, which obviously is a bit different for someone like yourself coming into it and having not played these games before. Um, but one of the key things that sort of annoyed me is it doesn't play very well in tight spaces. Yeah. Um, as an area early on. And, you know, survival horror is great at that generally. It's like tight spaces, tanky controls, very difficult. That is survival horror as it was. And I love that, but, um, doesn't always feel well constructed at this point. Well, I would say too, you know, especially in that early segment when you have these sort of spindly hallways and the spirits, you know, as spirits tend to do, they can phase through the walls. That becomes problematic when, you know, especially when you're in a tight corner and it's like one is right in front of you. So you hit it with the camera and it sends it reeling back and then it comes it like phases through the wall and then it's like half in the wall, half out. And you figure, well, I can see it. So I should be able to hit it then because with my camera, but then sometimes it's like, well, it's 50, 50 almost when it's like behind a wall or not, or when it's half emerged from a wall and these things. And, you know, with those stiff controls in first person and you're dealing with, you know, the functionality of like, am I facing the right way? Is it phasing through the wall enough for me to hit it? It did make a couple of, combat sequences, especially early on in those really tight corridors, mm. um, problematic. At the same time, though, like we just said, I w- went into this expecting it to play a little rougher than I would want yeah. from a survival horror game like this, because again, it's a remake of a 15-year-old game, or excuse me, it's a remaster of a 15-year-old game. Um, I, so I wasn't expecting it to play as smoothly as I'd want it to. And I would, you know, no. arguably it doesn't play that smoothly, but, you know, it's also not the type of thing that, you know, you're inching just to turn a corner or just to face the right direction, like barely, you know, you have to flick the stick 20 times to face the right direction. It's not nearly that bad. But when you get in those life or death combat situations, sometimes it can be problematic uh, to a fault, which is annoying. But um, I will also say, you know, in terms of a story being told from multiple points of view, um, I thought that was a really strong quality to the narrative. Yes. Um, I thought that that was something that felt very reminiscent of either J-horror or just, you know, some of my favorite uh, films that tackle, you know, trying to uncover this tragedy that occurred from multiple points of view. Yeah. Um, I really liked that. And I thought it was a more complex approach to storytelling, even if at the end of the day, you know, the premise is not all that unique. At the same time, I think that, it is an interesting way to navigate that type of story and it gives it a little more complexity, which was more engaging. Um, and I thought that, you know, I, you know, on top of wanting to finish this, but at the same time, uh, I really want to dive into more of the fatal frame series. And it sounds like uh maiden Blackwater would be the ideal uh, next step for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in evolution sense, I mean, hopefully they are going to get around to making new ones now that they're sort of addressing the balance, but really, what people need if in an era when we're getting remakes of genuine classics in terms of Dead Space and Resident Evil 4 Resident Evil 2 and Silent Hill 2 Fatal Frame 2 needs a remake so bad because it is honestly one of the most spectacular 
horror games out there in terms of story, especially. I mean, this is a great story. Uh, you know, the whole atmosphere, the whole legend and lore behind it, again, as you were pointing out, is so, so J horror infused that you can't help but root for it. But the thing that is key is that's the series as a whole. You know, it really does that constantly. Mm. And Fatal Frame 2 is like the perfect one for that. And you can't fucking buy it. You, know, you really, you can't have it on a modern console. That's criminal. And I hope that they're just working towards it. But, We've seen so many times with many old games now that, you know, something was lost in the original game. And so do you remaster it? Do you remake it? Remaster's easy if you've got the original code. Not so easy if you don't. Um, hence why you had those weird sort of um, half-measure ports that like you had to have for Final Fantasy VIII or even Silent Hill 2. They haven't remake the game entirely because they've lost a bunch of that code. So it's like they may make it sound like they're just making it for modern audience nope there's no other way they could do it, Let's put it this way. it's like so yeah as a series it just deserves so much more because once upon a time it was like the proper japanese horror game series you know like the other ones were alluding to more european and Amer- european and american ideas of horror which you know japan does a lot of with, with its media anyway that's fine but this just felt so distinctly Japanese because it was rooted in folklore and mythology and it was more fascinating for it. Mm. And it was always refreshing. And this game had so much of that. You know, I think it's worth persevering for the issues because of that. Because I think it, you will come away from it with a very different feeling than you will for many of the remakes of big horror games that you will have now because it really is survival horror still in the most classic sense because it is just a game from 15 years ago Uh, which is mad to think you know that's still like Resident Evil 5 territory and how different things were between two places you know and um, but there you go that just shows you how quickly things could change well Hopefully the trend continues uh, and we end up getting that remake because, you know, the only reason that this was remastered was based off the success of Maiden and Blackwater, right? Yeah. And so hopefully that keeps trending upwards to the degree that you get to get those remakes of, like you said, it's the fact that it's criminal that people can't play some of these games on these modern consoles. And, you know, it sounds like uh, I've been deprived and missing out on the originals and I would love a chance to get to play them. But uh Yeah, no, I think uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into uh, two VR titles. And then it's time to chat about Resident Evil 4. And we are back from our break. And Neil, why don't you introduce the first of the two VR titles that uh, you're bringing to the table this month? (laughs) Yeah, uh, so it's kind of a bundle deal here though mostly talking about the sequel and that is the, the walking dead saints and sinners uh chapter one and two here um by skydance interactive and that's for psvr2 um so if anyone had ever had psvr uh the original one they would have probably told you if they'd played it that um saints and sinners was one of the best titles on that in terms of like providing a proper full fat adventure on a VR platform, you know, a progenitor of what we would get in terms of uh, what Valve would do with maybe with Half-Life Alex, in, in terms of really just showing that you could do a 
a proper game you know, like that. There wasn't just mini games or cut back somewhat. And even then it was still a bit like that. Um, and you were then sort of limited by the technology uh, that the PSVR had. And so this uh, represents a great opportunity. The sequel comes out now and uh, in time for PSVR 2. And, you know, I came to this before going back to the uh, original game in its PSVR 2 version. And the difference is so, so striking. You know, I've not really had many reference points like that in um, VR yet because um, generally they're newer games or one-off games. So here to have, really have this jump in terms of how it controlled was just spellbinding. So, you know, it's an original story, very much, um, based more on the graphic novels in terms of visual style, um, where you're in New Orleans and, you know, going through the whole thing and going through a very typical Walking Dead story of, you know, factions and undead and stuff like that. So the sequel picks up pretty much straight after the first game and, sees you in the middle of a war uh, that's going on, that's escalating the, the dead are just rising in number, areas of New Orleans are flooded and you basically have to sort of navigate between them in a little skiddy boat um, it's the first game really, you know, these two I suppose really, that really make you feel a sense of that world, you know, of the world of the walking dead and actually surviving now the first game is much more of a survival game, and I think that was more to do with technology and the time, uh, where they didn't really want you to focus on combat as much because it would have been a bit difficult with the uh, limited technology. Here, with the sequel, it's much more relentless. You know, mm. if I would if I were to compare it, it'd be like jumping from Resident Evil One to Three. Yeah, you know, in terms of like how big a jump it goes into action, um, but you have the tools to do it. So, you know, you, I, I've described VR games before in the sense of, you know, you basically lit, physically pull back to grab a weapon from behind you or inventory or whatever. And all of that is there. The, the menus are all based on, you know, picking a journal out and like leaving through the pages and to find what you've got to do next or getting your rucks up, sack off your back and like looking through the inventory there to get what you need. Uh, knife on one hand, gun on the other. You can pick items up from the environment as well to use as impromptu weapons, which again just feels so beautifully want Walking Dead. You know that you could just be in a bar and pick up a bottle and just smash it on the table and just stab it <laughs> in the face of a zombie like that. It just yeah. and the physics of it mean that you have to get these things right. So you know you could do the old Daryl Dixon of like stab the zombie in the side of the head sort of thing, like they do the whole movement exactly how you want it. But if you don't get it right. You don't put just the right amount of force in, it will just bounce off, you know, like mm. that, which you just don't see in many games. And I thought that was really sure. smart in, in these games. Um, so the sequel just makes it a lot more tactile. You, know, you can climb, you can run, you can hide, whatever, you know, because you have human enemies as well. And, you know, it's broken up into these little environments, you know, you travel from this place to this place to this place. But if you rest and time goes by, the zombie frickler is higher. You know, the threat of factions gets worse. And there's a story being told that, you know, has moralistic choices. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like a VR, more freeform VR version of what we got with uh, Telltale's Walking Dead, you know, um, which, you know, was instantly appealing to me. But the big thing that Chapter 2 has 
over the first game is in its antagonistic um, nemesis, I suppose, if you will, um, the Axeman, who is your tyrant nemesis type character that just chases you around. Now, how many games have you played in the past where you've done that? Is going to tell you one thing, you know, where, okay, yeah, you've got run from this guy. Oh, panic, panic, panic. But you have a sense of safety. Doing it in VR is a very different thing. It is fucking terrifying. And I don't think even Resident Evil Village quite captured that because I think the one section where it's really impactful is a very different kind of thing. Uh, And uh, Lady Dimitrescu was not quite that intimidating in that sense. Here it's like, this guy's like a fucking bulky armor-plated serial killer. Yeah, he will chop down anything in his way. And it's just, it, you can take him on, but it's fucking stupid you know, to do it. And, you know, running is, it is probably the closest to feel like, um, you know, being in a slasher game or a, a slasher movie, you know, just being pursued by this threat that just will turn up on occasion and, yeah, just remembering that, plus you have this constant thing. Like I said, going back to the idea of what The Walking Dead does well, you know, it's like the fact that it's not just the zombies, it's the humans, it's other threats and like that, and trying to keep your head on a swivel to remember that all these things are happening at the same time. And that's where people usually you know, meet their downfall in this universe, which is, you know, they'll be too stuck on one thing to not, to not notice the other. And that will be their downfall. And you find yourself in that situation constantly. You are having to improvise, keep on the move. You know, you've got to reload the guns manually. You've got to do all those things like that. And but yeah, it's so intense, you know, it's, but you kind of don't want to leave it. You know, it's, it really does just sort of get that immersion. And because it's bit broken down into these chunks and you're in these areas, it, it kind of helps it a lot. Now, yeah, there's a downside to it in fairness. Um, and I think that downside comes from the fact that the story is good, but I think the characters you interact with are very stiff, you know, like that. They don't have the or expression of the graphic novel style that they, they are interpreting, yeah, and which is a shame. But I think generally as a game, it's bloody impressive what they've done with it. You know, I think these two games now, with the upgrade for the first one as well, just you know, telling this whole story is just magical. You know, a choice-based RPG system thing going on where you know it's not dying light. You're not going to park all around the place or anything like that. But it's it's got a bit of that, more like Dead Island, I suppose, in a way. And just yeah, the, the way you have to go about things is um, really interesting for me. I just find it one of the best examples of sort of replicating these things from a zombie apocalypse and making them making you feel like a part of it, you know, in a way that you are this outsider coming into a, this whole war and this world that isn't yours. And I, I really appreciate that about it. It's um, the, the ambiguity about your character in general really just sort of does do that. You wonders because you are basically just being, that's your avatar. You are in the shoes of the character and it is you. That's it. So yeah, it's, um, that one's a really fun one. Well, it sounds like it kind of sidesteps in my, I suppose, perception or an issue that I've had with what little VR first-person shooters I've played, which is that it's kind of like, okay, 
you got the core mechanic of shooting standing here. You kind of like hop, teleport to another section. But it uh, past the first 10 minutes, it doesn't sound like there's much depth to a majority of these VR type of shooters. And with this, it sounds like there's multiple sort of whether it's combat styles or just choice, right? Having choice, I think, is a big thing for VR, right? Because mm. so many of them are those types of on rails, limited functionality, and it's more about the score and your reflexes rather than giving the player a variety of either combat options or just influence in the world itself. And so to hear yeah. that, you know, you have more than just the kind of like, oh, I'm going to stand here and shoot for a bit and then go shoot over <laughs> there for a bit. Um, and at the same time, having some type of RPG type of morality thing, um, it sounds like it gives you a little bit more of a suppose a traditional feel of a game, but in a VR experience, which sometimes, yeah. you know, when I hear VR, I'm like, oh, it's all built around the gameplay functionality. And there's not much else there because, you know, of how much of a burden that is uh, in crafting that experience on the VR itself. Um, and so it sounds like this one at least has a bit more variety to it and a bit more player choice, which, uh, you know, if I was going to get a shooter for VR, it sounds like this might be one, uh, the second chapter worth checking out, especially if it's yeah. capturing, like you said, that feel of being in a slasher. Um, I mean, that's like, that's a huge part of the VR potential that is not always capitalized on. So mm. to hear that something out there is actually doing that, that sounds pretty promising. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, like I said, both being on there now as well and being fairly consistent from what I've seen so far with the first game. It's um been impressive, I'd say. So yeah, it's um played plenty of uh, VR horror stuff so far since PSVR two has come out, and it's just been really fun exploring them. Hmm. Which I suppose brings us on to the next one, which yeah. is <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> a return to the dark pictures on, on the inventory. Um, this time in VR with Switchback VR. Now I will front this um sort of talk on this with. The caveat that many reviewers had a lot of technical issues with this game when it came out. I didn't really that much. Yeah, and that kind of reflected it. You know, I've gone on about this before, but you know, if, unless the game is being fundamentally hurt and broken by the glitches or problems like that, I don't really see it as being a major reason to bring in. To, it'd be like saying, oh, that shot in that movie was shit, so I'm going to take two points off this score. So I think it just feels right. a bit finicky to say that sort of thing. So there was that. And I think it does, hopefully by the time anyone else plays it now, it will probably run better for everybody. Um, so if you ever had seen uh, Supermassive's last sort of effort into VR, which was an Until Dawn sort of spin-off called a rush of blood it was basically a roller coaster in in terms of you know on rails ghost train roller coaster type thing that saw you with guns like shooting things like that and basically just going through like things based on until dawn now this one obviously is based on the dark pictures and so therefore goes through the first few games of the series um and sort of takes it from there so Again, this is very much a case of like technology really sort of up in the ante. You know, I think again, Russia Blood was one of the launch games, I think, for the original PSVR and, you know, it was one of the favorites out of that bunch at the time. Um, uh, come a long way since then. And fundamentally, this is the same game. You know, it's, you know, it's still on rails, if you will. It's still a shooter, whatever you 
have a bit more freedom of movement. You know, you can duck and dive and dodge like obstacles and like that. Um, it makes good use of the technology that it's got to sort of accentuate its greater qualities. But it is still just a rail shooter. Now, that's not a problem, I find, because that's what it is. You have to look at this game as going on an amusement park ride like that. And it very much it is an interactive amusement park ride in VR form. And for that reason alone, I was so into it because just I love that sort of stuff anyway. But I think it really accentuates the scare level. You know, like the, the things that are very obvious. Yeah, you're going to get jump scared. Things are going to jump out at you and they build up to them. And they're not like special in terms of what they do, but they work really well because of the medium. Now, when I was talking about the technology and what that brings to the table, one of my favorite things in PSVR is the eye tracking, you know, which is it tracks you right. And they, you know, rip a page straight out of the Doctor Who book and do the whole um, weeping angels things with mannequins and, basically tell you not to blink or like enemies will like move uh, if you do and it's really fucking hard to, to do at first because there's no real warning of when this is going to stop or what you have to do the message is simply don't blink like that and like that and it's really intense because you're trying not to and you can get away with like a little flicker of the eye maybe but you close your eye that's it done you are they will get closer and then you kind of panic you go oh it's really intense. It gets repeated a couple of times. It's a different effect. But the first time it really happens is like, you know, you're in a small room. These mannequins that sort of multiply as well when you do it. And it just gets really unnerving. And it's just full of examples like that where it's like, it feels very traditionally like shooter, like gun shooter with that sort of fun house aesthetic to it. And yeah, it's a really fun time. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the ride of it. Yes, technical hiccups now and again kind of kick you out of what you're doing, you know, which is a shame. You know, and like I said, luckily I didn't have it as bad as other people. But yeah, it was nice to have a, a really good simulator of a funhouse ride yeah, at, at its core. And it sort of really embracing that. And I think if you take it as that, it's brilliant for what it is. And I, I think I was like the highest review score out there for this one. I think it's just because it tapped into something very personal for me in terms of like uh, really making it that very specific niche of idea special and fun. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm really, I have to say, I, I didn't expect a lot. <laughs> I think it's the most fun I've had in the Dark Pictures franchise so far. Which, you know, it's not to knock the other thing so much. It's just, this is kind of like simplified in a way that even the quarry wasn't, you know, where they were trying to sort of take things back to the basics of what people loved about Until Dawn. It's just fun in its own right. You know, whatever you put the, it didn't have to even be like a Dark Pictures game to work. And you know, fun, really, it doesn't do anything special within that realm. It just like, if you played those games, it takes key beats from those and key moments and you have boss fights and stuff like that but it's yeah all throughout you're like having to hit these little targets that come across so you can sort of up your score and stuff like that and it's yeah so it's all very much with the thinking of being an arcade based game 
uh, with strong horror, horror elements. And I think, yeah, if you were to sort of sit someone down and really scare the shit out of them, I think who's <laughs> not really been into VR, it would, would do a bloody treat, I'll tell you that. It sounds very reminiscent of Carnival, which was like a late 90s light gun horror arcade game from Midway that uh, I definitely remember spending plenty of time at bowling alleys playing. But uh, I guess my one question about it is that, you know, as much as it taps into sort of a personal niche for you, but at the same time, you know, being a fun uh, light gun game, are there qualities from the regular dark picture games that come into play in terms of gameplay or aesthetic or world building or something along those lines? Because it is one of those things where, you know, for people that, you know, hear about the fact that like, oh, dark pictures, like I like that series for what that does. And then they hear about a dark or a light gun uh, game built off of that. It's kind of like, are there elements that are resembling the core games or is it just like, hey, we're going to take this horror universe and play around with a new genre of uh, gameplay? Well, yeah, they they still employed the same choice system. You know, there, there are choices um, which you know fail necessarily, but you know you, you can take certain paths and do certain things on those paths to affect the story. So you you might be able to rescue a character, uh, for instance, based on Little Hope from being burned as a witch by going around and like shooting the people around the the fire, the bonfire, who, who are you know going to throw the fire effectively but don't do it to the ones who are holding like things that are going to set the fire off and you go around the track and have to make sure you pick the right ones it's simple stuff but it goes there and you know if you see a track coming up there'll be a like a, a switch to shoot to choose which path of the track you want to go to and it'll take you through a different couple of areas before you sort of convene back to the track you were on and so that there is that element of it where you can sort of find different routes and ways of doing things and but ultimately you you arrive at the same conclusion or whatever so it's a light version of what those games do but it's still fun for what it is in doing that way it that way nice well that's great to hear because i think that's always one of my uh worries is that it's like oh they're going to try this new style of gameplay that utilizes a certain type of technology but is there anything there resembling the originals other than just the name. Right. Yeah. And so to hear that there is some of that choice aspect to it, um, that sounds like it's, you know, at least taking some of what made the dark picture series and whatnot be a standout and applying it to a new gameplay style. That's not, you know, completely mm-hmm. ditching it past the name itself. So no. it sounds like, uh, again, two pretty good VR offerings this month that, uh, kind of buck the traditional trend of, uh, VR light gun games. Yeah, that's it. They've done, yeah, two games have done it very differently and um, certainly given us a bit more horror strength going into the second month for PSVR. So, yeah, good stuff. But I suppose we've talked for, what, an hour and 25 minutes. We, the final game is here, yeah, and uh, I'm sure we'll make the most of it. But uh, it's one I think we're going to be talking about again in the future. But uh, we'll definitely talk a fair bit, I think, about Resident Evil 4 Remake. Yeah. So I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, it's a game that I think for today's chat, we'll focus more on sort of the changes and the implementations that are new, essentially, to Mm. it that kind of heighten the experience of that core Resi experience while not completely, uh, I think, fundamentally rewriting it, if you will. But 
for anybody that was not in the know. Uh, Resident Evil 4 picks up six years after the previous uh, Resident Evil 2 that featured Leon Kennedy as well. And he has gone from rookie cop in that time to the president's right-hand man, who he's chosen to retrieve uh, the president's missing daughter from a cult residing in rural Europe. Uh, And naturally, when Leon arrives there, uh, he finds the locals have been controlled by a parasite known as Las Plagas, which is not exactly a zombie uh, infection or virus like a raccoon city, but it's pretty similar. And there are plenty of horrifying mutations and the like standing in his way. Uh, so as I said in the intro, you know, we already had the Dead Space remake, which effectively kind of took the bar that Resident Evil 2 remake had and set it even higher. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of some of the fundamental changes in rewrites to the Dead Space, I wouldn't say formula, but facets of the gameplay, right? The fact that, you know, instead of those gravity pads in Dead Space, now you have free range for those zero G moments and whatnot. At the same time, they really did heighten sort of the tension with that AI director and they made it that way in those backtracking segments. It wasn't just running through basically a morgue of all these corpses that you'd killed because areas will repopulate and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, And I think... The Resident Evil 4 remake kind of carries that baton in a way that continues to see them, by them, I mean remakes, implementing gameplay changes. But in my opinion, and especially with the Resi 4 remake, there are changes that are done so that feel very natural. They don't feel yeah. like they're throwing these mechanics in out of left field and it's like, oh, it'd be really cool if he could do this, but then it's completely out of character or it feels very foreign to yeah. the original experience. And I figured we could just go through, you know, some of the minor, uh, intermediate, and then drastic uh, changes that have been introduced um, to the remake and whatnot. And, you know, I guess I would say the most minor of, uh, you know, changes that you would probably not even notice if you hadn't played the originals would be two of them. And that is uh, we have an autosave feature now which is definitely comes in handy, especially uh, so you don't have to do a ton of backtracking. Whether or not, you know, the more hardcore survival horror fans are going to to appreciate that, it's one of those things where I was like, I don't know if that's really going to be to their cup of tea uh, just because, you know, it does make things a little more, I suppose, a little more lenient in terms of death, Mm. right? There's no real penalty uh, for that. And then the other one would be, all of the breakable items now are covered in that sort of games industry standard uh, yellow, mm-hmm. uh, which we've definitely seen crop up more and whatnot, which, you know, if I'm being honest, I don't necessarily have an issue with just because the amount of barrels that I missed back in the day, especially playing on the more hardcore difficulty when I need every single round uh, I can to make count, especially in those boss fights, uh doesn't really break my immersion or anything like that. And if anything, nah. it it's more helpful with how chaotic certain engagements can get. I find uh, it's definitely a nice sort of just like pulls the uh, draws the eye to be like, Hey, by the way, circle back in this direction when you're kind of like frantically running around and whatnot. Yeah. I, so, something that baffles me about the, the clamor for like, Oh, they shouldn't be guiding us. They shouldn't be guiding. Games have always fucking done that. You know? Yeah. It's it just, it's easier to notice when things were less, you know, detailed, you know, because um, everything stood out. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you had things stand out because you had the low quality visual style by comparison. And so, yeah, of course you're going to notice um, an ammo asset because it will look different fundamentally. Now, mm. it can't because you're trying to build a world. So hats off, to be fair, to what Capcom have done with that sort of yellow paint system is it does fit the world. It doesn't stick out in like a bright glowing box sense. It mm. is just... So it's painful. And even then, they kind of abandoned that later on in the game at points uh, during the castle section yeah. by having like the vases and things where you could just smash them and they don't really tell you anything other than that. It's just you can't have that in your head to go, oh yeah, vases, they'll smash. Like that. So, you know, it does start to trust the player. And as you said, the intensity is ramped up to a point now where compared to what it was that it's helpful. You know, and a thing about this game that is a key difference that stays the same, I suppose, is that the balance of combat and uh, Leon's abilities you know, are you know, upped in both senses. So, you know, Leon is more flexible now, you know, able to move more freely, mm. but he's now faced with a greater challenge and more ways to counteract what he does. And so what we were just talking about this with um Project Zero Fatal Frame that you know you can tell the difference in fifteen years of how things have moved on and the smartest thing a remake can do is just give those subtle differences that make it still feel like you remember it feeling whilst being completely different. You yeah. know I think last the last year or two I've played Resident Evil Four a few times, the original. And uh so a lot of these changes were like, oh, okay, a bit more distinct, you know. Um, but yeah, that, the combat is the first thing that really made me think, okay, you know, it's somehow more action heavy, but a bit more peril to it, which mm. is what I was kind of hoping because that balance could have been so wrong. Yeah. And we, I would have not liked this game at all if it had. And the first thing that came to mind for me with that that might have caused a problem was the, the parry system. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, beyond it being Resident Evil levels of it's absurd that you can parry a fucking chainsaw with, <laughs> with a kitchen knife, it's still a system. Mm. And I think it adds to the combat in a way that it keeps it flowing constantly. You, know, like, you don't have to use it at all. Yeah. And, and I think more traditional heads like myself, will find themselves using it less than people coming to it new. But I think if you can implement it into your combat, and uh, I think especially when I learned my second playthrough, I was like, I found it more useful then. Mm. Because I was getting used to the nuances of what they changed. And it just became, combat just became something else. It became special. You know, it raised my score a bit. You know, before I was like, good remake, not doing a lot really new and special you know but that combat really just grew on me yeah it overall it's just so much more fluid i think and mm. it's really something that i was i think it's so well implemented that it took me the first two to three hours to really like realize and i think a big part of that is you can now move while aiming which yeah. allows you to not be sort of just this fixture right which in the original game as much as i love the original that is definitely a downside of it in that it has this sort of, it feels like it's uh, caught between two worlds where it's this yeah. revolutionary perspective and more action focused 
but it doesn't play necessarily like that in that it feels like the controls are rooted more in the survival horror, you know, a traditional resi, but it wants to push things forward, but it's caught in that awkward gap. And now, you know, talk about the flexibility of Leon, even, you know, when you get swarmed and you start aiming and there's an enemy right in front of you, rather than having this kind of like awkward obscuring or something like that, he kind of takes on that sort of John Wick gun foo where, he, you know, he pulls the gun in close and tilts it at an angle and these things and has like these little moves that don't really obscure the player's vision of what mm. is happening, but at the same time, it keeps them in the moment and whatnot. It's very fluid. Um, and then, you know, the knife pairing, which I wasn't using as much as I should have for the first hour, just because again, it initially it feels slightly foreign, but then you see the versatility of it, right? It's not only that you can pair chainsaws or the player can time up a perfect parry with somebody that's using a bladed weapon or something, but at the same time, when somebody starts throwing axes at you, you just equip that knife and you have it out and then the player can gauge when they need to swing with it to knock it out of the air rather than just shooting it and wasting ammo. Um, Little things like that go a really long way, I think, in giving the player choice, but allowing the action to flow in either direction, you know, having equal offensive as they do defensive capabilities. And that even goes with something like having a crouch button now, which, you know, I didn't use all that often, but at the same time, it allows me to, you know, the stealth option, which if you sneak up on an enemy, you can kind of get them with a knife and that takes down the durability of your knife, but it gives you one stealth kill. And, you know, that's a feature that is not super integral, at least on the difficulty I'm playing on. But at the same time, it feels like a natural sort of ability for his skill set, if you will. Yeah. Um, the fact that you couldn't do that originally, it's just kind of like, well, why wouldn't I be able to do this? <laughs> um, and now, you know, it gives me at least one kill or two kills before the horde is inevitably uh inevitably alerted which is great because you know if you were able to kind of just stealth your way through every environment all of a sudden it doesn't feel like resident evil anymore but it's just enough of a you know it doesn't become a hindrance is what i'm getting at right i think that it doesn't fundamentally rewrite how you approach every situation it just gives the player a slight one up before inevitably you know they get into that intensity of combat that is uh very much the resi 4 experience Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would say the whole game for me is very much about accentuating the good parts and smoothing out the lesser parts. Yeah, and it does such a great job at a lot of that. I mean, the one thing it can't do is replicate the specialness of that original. It especially it can be special in its own right. You know, I think which is fine, but. You, it's difficult to remember for a lot of people that Resident Evil 4 was transformative, you know, for better and for worse in terms of the series and the wider industry. So this game is never going to be that, you know, and I think you should always have that in mind. You know, even if I grumble about it a bit, it's there. So look at it as being a remake that really just takes the best bits of what was there before makes them more comfortable for now. And it does its best to just sort of iron out those creases uh, that the game had to begin with. Is it always successful doing that? No, but you know, I think it's got a pretty damn good hit rate. 
I, I think it's mostly like quality of life uh, yeah. changes and updatings and whatnot, which ideally is the way that you would want them to approach it, right? Because it's like, obviously with a remake, if you're going to fundamentally start to rewrite things, it's like, well, this lacks a lot of the identity and the feel and the enjoyment of the original. So why did you even bother with this? And with this, you know, a lot of the changes are subtle to the degree that I would almost see some people maybe being slightly underwhelmed right out the gate just because it's like, oh, this is pretty mm. familiar. But then you start to realize and it's kind of retroactively realizing, oh, this is so much smoother than I remembered with the original and all of these things. And, you know, again, so many of these small changes like just build up over time. You know, I think about once Ashley gets introduced, right, and how that was such a kind of a headache literally back in yeah. the day because it was like Leon, constantly the shouting for Leon or Leon shouting back at her. And now it's very streamlined in the best way possible. You know, plus you have this sort of uh, simplicity of the commands, which is like either she stays in your shadow for when you're on the move or she falls back when you're trying to be stealthy or something like that. And it's very intuitive and very simplistic, mm. but it makes her less of a hindrance. And especially that helps when she doesn't have a health bar. It's just that she's downed or she can still get yeah. grabbed by the, you know, the uh, possessed. But at the same time, you know, you just kneecap them and they drop her. But it feels like a lot less of a headache with her inclusion to the degree that I wasn't even thinking about it, basically. And while she's not hiding in dumpsters, uh, you can still have her go hide in like a locker or something for especially, yeah. you know, when you meet those, uh, the chainsaw twin sisters or whatever, which yeah. the first time I did that, I didn't go through cause they're in this shack basically in the bottom floor. And the first time I went through the shack just on the bottom floor and Ashley was with me. So it was a fucking headache because I, she kept getting <laughs> chainsawed. And then there's all these other sort of, so, uh, villagers that I have to contend with. And then the second time I did it, I went through the top and I put her in a locker and then I could deal with them on my own. And it's like, again, these little sort of rewrites or tweaks on what was already there, um, I think is doing a really good job at removing the rougher edges to Resident Evil 4, which were yeah. perhaps a byproduct of just how drastic of a change that was going from the core games of the first trilogy to then that. And it really feels like a more smoother, streamlined approach to that, you know, drastic change in this new Resident Evil identity. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, also in terms of just the freedom with which you can explore the world, I was a huge fan of the fact that you can really, you have the freedom to traverse back and forth through yeah. different areas. And it's like in the original, you couldn't do much backtracking outside of the chapters. And while you do have chapters in the remake, those chapter breakups are more sort of save point, hard save points, but then also moments to kind of catch your breath. But it yeah. doesn't limit your, you know, retracing your steps. Um, even when the game throws, and this is one of the elements that's newer, periodically the environment will fundamentally shift and you'll have to like find a new route through somewhere or be faced mm. with a new obstacle. But at least so far, and I only was able to get to chapter eight uh, before we were recording, it was the thing where I was like, I had to find a new route, but it still didn't fully block me from retracing my steps. Um, and I think that that plays into it with the lake, right? Where the lake is not just the setting of a boss battle, but you can access other parts yeah. of the island. And, you know, that comes into play with the new side missions in addition to the different sort of quests that you can uh, undertake to get these different rewards that can then be spent at the merchant to get gear that you can't buy with traditional 
uh, money. So you have to do these challenges to get that special gear. Yeah, it's one of the cool things about it is the side quests are actually really quite fun to sort yeah. of go and investigate. I left many of them for the second playthrough, but they are really cool. Um, but just to sort of go back when we talk about Ashley, um, another key thing that has changed for me is the supporting cast just feels more there, you know, mm. like there. I think with the exception of maybe Salazar, who I kind of liked what he was sure. you know, in the original game. And there's something cool about what they've done with that character anyway this time by changing him completely. Mm. But generally characters just feel a bit more there. I mean, Luis is a key example. He's a more nuanced character than he ever was. You know, he was, you know, a horn dog that ended up meeting a grizzly bait in the original. Here, he's not so much for a horn dog. <laughs> and, you know, Ashley was one of those ones that really did take time to sort of tell you the story of how it's going. Because to begin with, you know, when I'd heard all they were saying about how it was going to be better and you know, everything was going to be implemented better. I started to think it was just they were talking about the mechanics of like her staying away like that. Um, because initially she doesn't seem like much of a character at all. You know, yeah. she barely says anything. And it's not till later where she starts to sort of grow into the role that she has and she becomes more independent and feisty. She becomes a final girl, you know, effectively. And you chart that journey from when you first see her and it suddenly becomes clear that it's the trauma of everything she's endured that makes her so monosyllabic and, you know, very hesitant to do things, you know. And she just grows as time goes on, more time she spends with Leon, that she gets it you know, and gets the plight of the situation. And it's actually like one of my favorite changes about the whole game is mm. she just feels like a character rather than a mission. And like, and I'm so happy about that because you're more invested in um, protecting her and saving her and getting her away from these situations because she's contributing you know uh, more and more and more as you go on in that game and, and like i said for all characters it seems true for me that they have something about them that is better this time around from krauser especially you know that whole thing feels more fleshed out it doesn't just feel like he's dumped into the story and mm. um that you have to go and sift through the, the side notes to find out why um i suppose my only exception is sadler maybe who feels a bit too much like Demon Jeff Bezos now. <laughs> but other than that, that kind of fits in a way, even if it is a bit, you know, the time it takes place, it's a bit early. But still, it it, it was a bit odd, the, the way the character goes. But yeah, yeah well, the, the interaction with Ada and Leon as well is just the perfect sort of jump from what happened before. You know, the things that were always... Yeah, you know, there in the background of what they couldn't really write at that point are there in those two games now with the remakes and it makes it feel less like a forced thing you know this whole Leon and Ada thing and yeah so I was really happy to see how that turned out sorry no I was just gonna say you know I would 
think that a big part of why the writing and the character development and just implementation is stronger is that, you know, that is the benefit of remaking a game almost 20 years after its release, right? I think, think mm. about what storytelling and character development was like in 2005 and compared to now, right? The advancements and not to say, you know, there aren't still uh, leaps and bounds that perhaps some games need uh, to go in terms of just like bringing their characters into a place where they feel more believable or they don't just, you know, portray female characters like damsels in distress, right? Yeah. Which is what very much what Ashley was. And even at the point that I'm at in the game, which is about five to six hours into Resi 4, you know, she, you see a semblance of a much more believable and stronger character that is not this sort of just whiny Leon come save me at every single moment, right? And I think that that has been also the fact that even as B-movie as Resi has been and will always be, and that'll always be a chunk, a part of the identity of it, there seems to be a more, I suppose, darker and straightforward tone with the Resi 4 remake than with the original. Um, just mm. thinking about, you know, even how Luis is introduced, which is that in the original, I believe he's locked in like a cabinet. And in this, he's in one of those burlap sacks that you see other people yeah. with. And it's like just the way in which those little moments are portrayed in the remake, it feels a little more believable and a little bit less like a punchline or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and I think that that definitely plays out also in just overall, like the interactions with every character. Um, they seem a lot less forced. They seem a lot less at the face value of just being like, oh, this is like the comedic relief or something like that. And I think that mm. even um, that villain, their name escapes me. What was the villain's name that they redid? Um, Which the, one? The Salazar? one that was Salazar. Like yeah. even redoing that, like it's less of a punchline and a little more ominous or just a little mm. more strange, which I like. Uh, you know, not to say that the game is completely devoid of uh, the B movie charm at times, but oh, man. you know, I I think that they haven't <laughs> stepped on the lines that were so integral to Leon Kennedy and everything. You know, that bingo line still hits just as hard as it did in the original one and whatnot. And I think that it's a great balance of making something, at least where I'm at, a little less ridiculous and over the top, but still having that charm and that identity of Resi just being yeah. updated for the modern palette, if you will. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was appealed to me in that original development process is, yeah, Devil May Cry came out of this. And um, there's so much of Leon in that original game that, that feels like Dante in terms of just like shitty humor and in the right moment that just feels perfect for what he's doing. And in this one, you know, there were, there were good moments. Yeah, no doubt about it. But I tell you what, without any spoilers the final boss fight of this game has the most schwarzenegger line going for the kill line and i fucking loved it it made that fight like 10 times better like that it's cheesy as hell but oh just magnificent yeah i i, I could not say more than that <laughs> yeah um one one other thing that i wanted to mention in terms of the darker I guess, I don't know if I want to say tone, but just darker overall. Um, mm. You know, something that always sort of stood out to me about Resident Evil 4 was it, even at the nighttime sections, it was a more vibrant game, which played to the fact it was more action oriented, which yeah. is why I think, you know, part of that transition from action from 
survival horror classic style of the original games to that action horror hybrid was a little harder to swallow for some people. Um, I think in this game, again, it finds this great balance because it is literally a much darker game. And that plays really well in the expanding of the environments, especially Mm. when you're doing those extended cave sections that are new early on. I think that, again, playing with time of day and also just the environmental factors, like especially early on in the first three hours, there's a section where you're dealing with like a storm, which makes a very sort of retreading of a a scenario uh, that much more sort of unnerving. But then, as we had said with those side quests, you know, you go and you revisit an area that you can now access because you have Ashley, who you can boost up to bring down yeah. the ladder. But then immediately you're faced with the toughest enemy that you've had to fight uh, up until that point in the game when you're revisiting the village. And mm. I just I love how it makes retracing your steps in this backtracking not feel like a hindrance on your overall progression because something no. worthwhile is being earned, whether that be anecdotal from a combat uh, standpoint or if it's quite literally a monetary value of getting these rubies or gems and whatnot that you can boost your treasures or even just unlock gear that you couldn't previously access because, you know, they won't accept money for them. Um, But I think also one quality of life thing that was present in all of the remakes they've done so far is, or at least remake two and three is the, uh, the quick swap for weapons when you get that grid, which is such a simplistic thing to, to even mention it. Uh, probably seems silly, but at the same time, as much as the traditional Resident Evil 4 experience was like going back to your uh, case to get things every like, it seems 30 seconds or something when you're playing it to now (laughs) you have that hot swap ability of just, you know, syncing up where your guns are and whatnot on screen real time. Um, It, it allows again, the fluidity of combat to never feel like it has to pause for a moment. Um, And, you know, thinking back now, the idea that I have to go into my case to take out a shotgun is like, that's wild to me. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it just, it flows so seamlessly and it makes combat, which I already thought was strong with Resident Evil 4, that much stronger, that much yeah. in the moment. Um, I guess one thing I'm curious about from a traditional survival horror aspect, how do you find the inclusion of crafting in this? Because um, that's one of those things that, you know, even somebody that enjoyed Resi 4 and, you know, has an appreciation for pre and post Resident Evil titles from that game's release. Yeah. It kind of feels like one of those things that's included because it's more commonplace in, you know, modern games that feels probably the most out of place for me. I was curious how you felt about that. Well, not too bad because there's been a uniformity to this modern sort of reboot of the series, you know, where since seven onwards really you know so it all kind of fits in now you know they've all had aspects of this i mean village very much village is the, the point you need to sort of think of with this game because in the same way that seven and two sort of had that vibe together you know in terms of what they did together and so yeah it didn't bother me as much i have to say i i think it's just because I, I understand where they're going for now that this is their vision for the future. So it Sure. Yeah. I Not, guess that's the connective thread, right? The connective thread between the modern era of Resi. It was just one of those things where I don't know, it's probably the one 
thing that as like a long lifelong fan of Resident Evil that I was like, oh, this has this new functionality has bailed me out of every single situation <laughs> that typically back in the day. And maybe that's my old man yelling at the clouds moment where it was like <laughs> every situation that I would have had back in the day with one of these games where I had to make every shot count. It was, hey, man, this is what you either building up to a boss fight or building up to a tense moment. You have to make every bullet count. You have to be smart with what you go through. There's a little more wiggle room with that new yeah. functionality. And granted, when you play on the more hardcore difficulties, there's going to be less resources. So you're not going to just craft your way out of everything. But at the same time, it was one of those little things where I was like, uh, case space was already a huge issue. And now, mm. you know, I've got all these extra things that I'm kind of having to stuff in my case and whatnot, the different uh, resources and whatnot. But at the same time, when you're in a boss fight and it's like, oh, I'm out of ammo. I've expended the ammo that was allotted to me through this environment. I'm just going to craft another dozen shotgun shells or something like that and get myself yeah. out of this. Um, so from that aspect, I was kind of like, it doesn't break the experience for me, but I did find myself using it as a crutch when I yeah. was playing maybe a little more carelessly than I should have been. <laughs> and that's it. I think maybe that's where the magic lies. Is it lulls you into the idea that you're going to be fine. Mm. And there's always going to be plenty of ammo. And then suddenly you find it's a bit wretched and you're not getting as much. I think the latter half of the game really punches that home. You know, it really tells you that everything you've learned about how much comfort you have and what ammo you might craft ain't going to happen here, son. <laughs> like that. And, you uh, Especially when you get to the island part of the game and it, and the regenerators, no, it's for something again so familiar and that you know the rules to. Um, the subtle changes, while I didn't like all of them, that really kind of were a great example of this game sort of pulling the rug out from under you, making you feel comfortable with familiarity doing something a little bit different that just sort of caught you off guard. And the movement of those fuckers is just <laughs> like something special, which is um, some forgiveness given then for the fact that they don't sound like they did, which is the thing, mm. strangely, the thing that irks me the most about the entire game. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> it's such an iconic noise that those yeah. fuckers they made and... Um, it not quite being the same just feels a bit flat, but the movement kind of takes over for that. Uh, sure. I think this is going back to the whole game, really. There's a lot of moments like that where something will be different and you'll kind of sort of you know, sniff at it in disgust for a minute. And get, <laughs> well, this isn't quite like I remembered. And then, but you let it play out and suddenly you're left with the moment where you're like, it's a pretty good change. Good mm. smart change. A lot more acute than it was with um, Resident Evil 2, where it took a lot longer to sort of appreciate the nuances for someone like myself who was, adores the original like that. And there are still bits of the game that I will just cross my arms and put a pouty face on and say, no, that, that bit shit compared to the original. Like that. But it was daring in the right ways. This game feels like uh, time and understanding has been put in and they're like, no, okay, we get it. We get what you need. We get what, how to do these things and ultimately just makes those bits better. 
Yeah, it feels much tighter, I'll say. You know, I've definitely yeah. noticed in the five five to six hours that I was able to put into it that I noticed little bits and bobs, but they the things that I was like, oh, man, I, that's different. Why is that different? Within the next five minutes of playing through that section, I was like, yeah, I mean, that d- would not fundamentally change what just occurred, right? It's like no. this little bits of set dressing, perhaps. And I think that the game does a good job of introducing environmental changes to the degree that you almost instantly forget what is missing because it Mm. is in the grand scheme of things so minuscule that you're almost immediately taken by some type of drastic change in terms of an environment. Like early on, there's a couple of sections like um, when you come across your first bout of the mines, the tripwire mines, right? In the original game, that was something where you kind of like, it's just the woods, you run through a couple of shacks and this and that, but in the remake, it's an expanded area that has this, you know, you have a wall that the enemies are lobbing grenades mm. at you from, so you have to contend with that. There's also this great sort of like swampy uh, boat graveyard that you have to contend with and maneuver and whatnot. So it's taking very simplistic environments from the original and expanding them and giving them more texture and sort of uh lore flavoring, if you will, for Mm. the setting. And it's just distinct enough that it kind of throws you for a loop, especially if you've played the game, you know, a handful of times like we both have. It's the type of thing that it's like, oh, I can appreciate they've expanded on an area that was very nondescript in the original. And while, you know, it might not be a highlight at the end of the day of the experience, it's at least giving it a breath of fresh air, I think. Especially, I think about that early segment when you leave... Um, when you're saved, quite literally saved by the bell, uh, when you deal with the chainsaw man and the horde for the first time. And then you go to that next section when the sort of blue medallions are introduced. And that section in and of itself, which is like a little farm area section, you know, it does two things or three things rather. It introduces that you're going to come across chests that you can't open at that moment. You need a special key, which, Mm -hmm. oh, all of a sudden I'm given a reason to revisit this area. It introduces a new type of enemy, which is basically like a, uh, a thicker type of villager, uh, a guy that's got like a bull mask on and he's got a hammer. Mm. So all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's a new type of enemy I have to contend with. That could be it's basically a bullet sponge. But, you know, learning how to interact with that enemy and the fact that you can bait them to attack others or getting yeah. farm animals to run through hordes of enemies if you trigger them or something like that. Um, but then at the same time, they introduce a new puzzle that is like this windmill section, which mm. I really, really liked because, again, it threw me for a loop. I was like, oh, wait, this is giving me pause because this is not only new, but there's a interactive portion to it, which I'm appreciative of. It's not just set dressing. It's, oh, I have to find this envi- this uh, puzzle piece, which then lets me traverse this environment in a new way. Um, and just, you know, so far, the little changes like that. I'm appreciative of because they give me pause, but then they give me something to do in addition yeah. to just being different. If it was just different, you'd be like, okay, that's cool, I guess. But it's giving me something to do uh, as the player. It's giving me more agency and escaping a zone mm. that I thought I knew all of the sort of tips and tricks to. Um, so I'm appreciative of that. Excellent. I think we'll leave it there for, for this talk on the game. Um I'm sure once you've finished it and more than once and uh, we'll, we'll come back to this as a, a full fat episode at some point. But um, yeah, the, the, it's telling that there's so much to say already. 
that's the thing. We have, for as long as we chatted about it with just the things that are different uh, to the point that I'm at in it, it's like there's so much more to say and just – you know, we could get and we will in the future when we chat about this game in a little more depth, some of the directorial changes, the ways in which, you know, you've kind of uh, changed some cutscenes and interactions in these things, some for the better, some for the worse. Uh, it's definitely a conversation we've scratched the surface of, but I look mm. very much forward to chatting about that in depth uh, and, you know, hopefully down the line at some point uh, chatting about dredge in a little more depth. But I think this was another uh, jam-packed month for the inventory, and we had no shortage of you know stellar quality titles to chat about. No, I mean we almost clocked in at two hours by the time <laughs> we take out bits, but um, yeah, it's good showing, a really good showing this month. And um, God, can it be better this year? Yeah, <laughs> it's a strong start to the year, and you know I think uh, you're as excited as I am for next week chatting about. Another round of uh, monthly indie bite-sized titles uh, for Horror Bites, which is what we'll kickstart the month of April off with. And then we'll be chatting later in the month about Layers of Fear before they uh, you know, inevitably release Layers of Fears, which is going to be that new experience that uh, kind of back, remixes. It, it is back to Layers of Fear again, by the way. Oh, they've changed. <laughs> Even though it's a completely different game in a lot of ways, it is back to that. But yes... But yeah, and but anyway, beyond that, sorry, I was just going to interject anyway. And of course, beyond that, we have a 100th episode officially um, coming up in April, which um, we've taken a particular flavor with. Them. We'll get out there now with it because we know what we're doing. And we're just going to do our top 10 Resident Evil games each, you know, like that. No sharing beforehand, none of that. Um, any game from spin-off to canon, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, by all means, if you have your personal top tens or personal favorites you want to shout out, please do send it our way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And we highly encourage people to uh, to let us know their thoughts on uh, their favorite Resi games. And that leads me to what you guys can do, which is reach out to us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod, uh, not only for show updates, but to share your opinion on uh, whether it's Resident Evil games or just stuff we're going to be covering in the future. As always, you guys can also shoot us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com as if you'd like to share your thoughts that way. And we, of course, have a Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, where Neil, myself, and other horror fans uh, get together and chat about games. Also, a fair bit of movie chat in there as well. Um, but yeah, really looking forward to tackling uh, the month of April and all of our horrifying chats that will go along with that. But uh, as always, Neil, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Indeed. Until the next time. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you guys next Monday. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. 
Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 